what we see and what we seem are but a dream. A dream within a dream. On St. Valentine's Day in 1900, a group of girls from an exclusive ladies' boarding school set out for a picnic at Hanging Rock. But what should have been an idyllic day turned into a nightmare that would have far-reaching and catastrophic effects on all involved. Three young ladies and their governess would never return from the rock. Their disappearance would go down in Australian history as one of the most puzzling unsolved mysteries of the nation. But what really happened on the rock on that summer's day in 1900? Welcome to Laudanum and Lace. I'm your host, Suzanne. And I'm your host, Karina. And again, we'd like to say thank you to everyone who's supported Laudanum and Lace and everyone who commented online, sent us messages and gave us nice feedback on our Ghost Brides episode. Like Gemma, host of the podcast, I Think My Fridge is Haunted, Suffocate City podcast and Victoria from Reading in the Shadows who was waiting out lockdown in the UK and said when it's over, she's looking forward to visiting some of the places that we mentioned in the last episode. Linda told us about her visits to Charles Fort in Ireland and the pub called The White Lady in Cork. Karen messaged us and said she loved hearing about the real life Miss Havisham because Great Expectations is her favourite Charles Dickens novel. So if anyone has visited any of the places that we mention or taken photos, please tag us, send them to us. We'd love to see them. Also, thanks and hello to Damon, Vicky, Sarah, Tony, Anthony, Jade, Kate and Sean. And I would love to say a big hello and thank you to all who have supported us. And I would love to also say hello to Caleb, Jacob, Scott, my mum, James, Karen and Alan. Please remember to follow us on Instagram or Facebook. We post lots of interesting things related to our episodes and love to hear from you as well. It also helps us if you subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify or wherever you listen and also maybe leave a review, which really helps us as well. Even if you just leave us a star rating, we really do appreciate it. In this episode, we'll be discussing one of our favourite Australian mysteries, Picnic at Hanging Rock. Immortalised first in Joan Lindsay's classic 1967 novel, then in Peter Weir's 1975 film. Picnic at Hanging Rock is set at the beginning of the Edwardian age. It's Joan Lindsay's love letter to this era, which she recollected from her childhood with an idyllic sense of nostalgia. It's been adapted into a stage play, musical and inspired art, music, fashion and popular culture, more recently being adapted into a TV series in 2018. Few stories have inspired such intrigue and captured the imagination of Australia so poignantly. 
It's a story steeped in the supernatural and unexplained with many layered themes of mysticism, synchronicity, precognition and psychic phenomena as it merges fact with fiction so adeptly that one never quite knows what is real and what is not. The esoteric nature of the tale, its creation and setting, pushes the boundaries of reality. It's a story of Australian paganism, where dreams transcend sleep and the past, present and future become one. Picnic at Hanging Rock has become a legendary part of Australian folklore. The image of the schoolgirls dressed in their crisp white muslin is burnt into Australian consciousness. A sunny yet sinister expression of the Australian Gothic amidst an ancient landscape that can seemingly devour people whole. We will explore the book and author Joan Lindsay, the film and the rock itself, as well as mysterious and supernatural events that surround them. We will also discuss the many theories about the girls' disappearance and the real facts behind the case, including similar disappearances that happened in the Australian bush in the 19th century. Warning, this episode contains spoilers for the book and movie. We'll be going deep down the rabbit hole of Hanging Rock, and the story is like the rabbit hole in Alice in Wonderland. So, Karina, when did you first discover Picnic at Hanging Rock, and did you see the film or read the book first? I saw the movie first around the age of maybe five or six. Um, It certainly has influenced me personally and haunted me ever since, I'd have to say. Um, It's such a mysterious story with a beautiful Edwardian melancholic mood. So, yeah, I guess I've been a huge fan ever since a very young age. I have as well. It really captured my imagination as a child, not just the mystery, but also the beauty of the film. And when I saw the film, I immediately wanted to read the book. And I also remember as a child, once I'd seen the film, I begged my mum, take me to Hanging Rock. I thought that I could find the girls. I was just desperate to get there and find them. That's really quite beautiful. The timing of this episode is particularly relevant given that currently the future of Martindale Hall is uncertain. Known for being the filming location of Appleyard College in the movie, this historical building is under threat once again from the South Australian government. But we will go into this more in depth later in the episode. So why is Picnic at Hanging Rock so special to you? I guess because it's one of my personal childhood obsessions and inspirations and also I guess gives us an insight into the mysterious side of the Edwardian era leaves us wanting more and opens the door to portal exploration and in my personal opinion the mystery never ends and that in itself is extremely haunting. Everyone agreed that the day was just right for the picnic at Hanging Rock a shimmering summer morning, warm and still, with cicadas shrilling. On that fateful Valentine's Day in 1900, the group of schoolgirls and their teachers fluttered about in the holiday muslins like a flock of excited butterflies. And after breakfast and the annual exchange of Valentine's cards, they set off to the rock by horse and cart. 
The day was idyllic. After lunch, four students, Miranda, Edith, Irma and Marion, decided to get a closer look at the rock. The mathematics teacher, Greta McCraw, followed shortly after while the rest of the party lounged in the grass at the picnic site. Meanwhile, back at the college, the headmistress, Mrs Appleyard, awoke from a nap at 4pm, expecting the party to leave the rock around that time and be back by about 8pm. It took approximately three and a half hours to travel from the rock to the school by horse and cart. The 8pm came and went, then 9 and 10. By 10.30, they still weren't back and she was beside herself with worry. Miranda's roommate, Sarah, was also in a state of anxiety. She'd been left behind at the college that day as punishment. Shortly after 10.30pm, the party returned, but with terrible news, that Miranda, Irma, Marion and Mrs McCraw were all lost on the rock. The police were notified, but despite extensive searches that carried on all week, with dogs, volunteers and Indigenous trackers, the women were not found. The ladies that went missing that day were Miranda, she was 18 years old, tall with long fair hair and extremely well liked. The most popular girl in school. She was the most senior girl at Appleyard College, so the other girls naturally looked up to her. Marion Quaid was 17, highly intelligent with a brilliance for maths, while Irma Leopold, also 17, was from one of the richest and most prominent families in the colony. She was always immaculately dressed with dark ringlets and the latest fashion. Also missing was Greta McCraw, their mathematics teacher. The disappearance was uncharacteristic for the ladies. Miranda had grown up on a cattle station, so was familiar with the bush, and the rest were generally sensible and reliable people, especially their teacher. The last person to see them alive was Edith Horton, who had tagged along with the other girls. Not being an outdoorsy person, she was unenthusiastic about the bushwalk and watched on as the trio disappeared high into the rocks as though they were in a trance. But something happened on the rock, something profound and terrible. Edith ran as fast as she could back to the picnic ground, screaming hysterically. Her dress was torn to shreds but she could never remember what she had seen, where she had been, or what had frightened her. Four days later, Edith revealed to the police that as she had fled from the rock, she had seen Mrs McCraw going into the opposite direction. According to Edith's statement, Mrs McCraw's skirt had been removed so that she was wearing only her drawers. This would have been very indecent and out of character for most women in 1900 let alone an older conservative schoolteacher. There were other witnesses who were among the last to see the girls. Mademoiselle Diane de Portier, the French teacher, who watched the girls disappear through the trees on their doomed expedition, as well as two young men, Michael Fitzherbert, a wealthy young Englishman picnicking nearby with his aunt and uncle. He was accompanied by their coachman, Albert Crundle. The young men leered, 
and Albert whistled as the girls passed by. Some of them are real lookers. More than a week later, the two young men would return to the rock to find Irma Leopold barely alive. She was found with no shoes or stockings, but her feet were clean and unscathed. Her corset was also missing, but none of these details were reported to the police because the woman nursing her was too embarrassed to tell the male police officers about the missing undergarments. The examining doctor did note that Irma had not been sexually assaulted, though her fingernails were badly torn and broken, as though she'd been scratching at the rocks. Irma never recovered any memory of what happened on the rock or where she had been for over a week. Miranda, Marion and Mrs McCraw would never be seen again and no bodies were ever found. It was as though they had vanished into thin air. Their disappearance still remains a mystery to this day. The events of that Valentine's Day would have a long and insidious effect on almost everyone involved. The picnic was like a curse, which Joan Lindsay described as being a ripple in a pond that spread and became darker the further it travelled from the centre. This can be true of any terrible happening, especially a crime or a disappearance. It doesn't just affect the victim or missing person, but all the people around them. The picnic is the catalyst for the tragic events which follow. The scandal of the missing girls ruins the school's reputation and most of the students are withdrawn by their parents. To cope, the headmistress, Mrs Appleyard, turns to alcohol then Sarah's life ends tragically with suicide. Eventually, Mrs Appleyard also commits suicide by jumping from the peaks of Hanging Rock. But the tragedy doesn't end there. Dora Lumley, a young teacher, resigns due to the scandal and on the night that she leaves is sadly burnt to death with her brother in a hotel fire. Had she not left the school, it never would have happened. Then the following summer, a bushfire swept through the area and the school burned to the ground. Do you think that Hanging Rock is cursed? Who knows, it might be cursed to some degree. I was actually wondering maybe perhaps to those who possibly might disrespect it. I do know some people who used to go there for ritual purposes many years ago, personally, and um, it's such a beautiful spot. I believe it is more magical and maybe more likely to be haunted than cursed. That's an interesting thought that it's just to those who disrespect it, something we might talk about a bit later in the episode. Do you think that places can be cursed? Yes, definitely. There's lots of cursed places around the world, actually, when you start looking into it. And generally, they're where some tragedy has taken place. And then, I guess, similar tragedies tend to follow afterwards, or darker rituals have taken place to conjure malevolent entities or dark energies. Hanging Rock is a real place, which is part of the Macedon Ranges near the townships of Woodend and Mount Macedon in Victoria. Formerly known as Mount Diogenes, the strange and eerie rock formation consists of the remains of an extinct volcano. 
It was formed when magma violently burst through the earth millions of years ago. Today it's named after the colossal boulder which perches precariously above two others. Between the rocks there are countless hidden holes, caverns and deep chasms that some say have never been explored. Mademoiselle de Portier wonders to the reader how anything so beautiful could be the instrument of evil. But what is the truth behind hanging rock? And is it really cursed? So this year, Slava, forced up from deep down below. So the trachytes, extruded in a highly viscous state, building the steep-sided mammotons we see in hanging rock. And quite young, geologically speaking. Barely a million years. Waiting a million years. Just for us. The rock is said to be haunted. Many people who visit there report feeling an unsettling presence, as though they are being watched or are trespassing. While some people report hearing voices or whispering and footsteps on the rock, Tourists who have taken small parts of the rock as souvenirs are reported to have posted these fragments back to the visitors' centre from all over the world. They claim that the stolen rocks have caused them bad luck, with some claiming that they are cursed. Shrouded in mist and mystery among the spires and rocky peaks, the facades resemble foreboding, anguished faces, while strange cloud formations are also frequently seen there. Edith reports that as she was fleeing from the rock, she noticed strange red cloud formations in the sky, and during filming, actor John Jarrett reported an unusually intense storm isolated just around the peak of the rock. So you've been to the rock? I have. I've been there maybe about five times over the years. Um, I guess the first time I went to the rock was maybe around 2011, and that was with my dad. We went on a, a road trip from South Australia to Victoria. And that's when I noticed the unusual faces in the rocks and also captured many unusual orbs in the photos that I took as well. Did you get any unusual feeling from the rock? I actually did. When I was walking up there, I it was more not so much at the base, but once I got to the first part where I was actually standing on the rock, it's just, it's even hard to explain. It's its a really unusual energy. I personally would love to spend the night there. I'd love to sleep the night up on the rock, but I don't think you're allowed to anymore. But there is some weird energy up there. And believe it or not, I'll have to post a picture. When I was up on the rock, I was sort of wandering around while my dad was taking photos. And I actually found an old antique piece of lace, which was hidden and tucked in behind a rock. Ooh. Mm. <laughs> chills yeah did you get the sense of that you could get lost there yes definitely definitely maybe not so much these days because they've got signs like little signs from memory and sort of uh, you know like walking trail national park kind of stuff i guess if you imagine it as it was when the film was shot in the 70s and then once again, even before that, in 1900, when Picnic at Hanging Rock is set. Absolutely. And um, I, I reckon if you could imagine back in the 1800s, 
into the early Edwardian era, even in the 20s, 30s, it would have been such an isolated place and it would have been a very scary place to go to as well. I reckon it would be so easy to get lost up there back in those days. And, of course, they didn't have the technology like we have now with mobile phones or satellite phones or helicopters or any of that kind of really smart search and rescue that we have now. That's right. So you pretty much would have been doomed. Yeah, unless someone found you or you're lucky. That's right. Nearby, there's also what's known as an anti-gravity hill. This is a strange natural phenomenon where objects appear to roll uphill instead of down. A ball or bottle of water and even a car in neutral will miraculously roll uphill seeming to inexplicably defy gravity. Maybe one of our listeners has been to an anti-gravity hill. If so, let us know. We'd love to hear about it. This long unexplained phenomenon has been associated with supernatural or strange magnetic forces related to the volcanic nature of the site's geology and even disruptions in time or UFO activity. But more recently, it's been discovered to be an optical illusion. Despite this, the curious phenomena merely adds to the supernormal aspects of hanging rock. Funny. Blowed up my watch hasn't stopped. Dead on 12 o'clock. Real funny. Another curious phenomenon associated with the rock is its ability to stop clocks and make compasses malfunction. People often claim that their watches and electronic devices stop working as they approach the rock. And during the filming of the movie, the cast and crew reported that their watches stopped or behaved erratically, so that asking what the time was on set actually became a joke. But why does this happen? Magnetization is known to affect the running of watches, some watchmakers even offer watches resistant to magnetic fields. So people have put this strange phenomena down to the unusual magnetic activity in the hanging rock as well. Some also propose that ripples in time exist there. Stopped at 12. Never stopped before. Must be something magnetic. People also believe that there is a ley line between Mount Macedon and Hanging Rock. Ley lines are supernatural lines that supposedly connect the universe through significant man-made and natural landmarks. They form patterns that circulate the Earth's magnetism and as they intersect and flow, they're said to create vortexes and spiralling energy. This might sound far-fetched, but it's an esoteric theory that has long been considered by some as explaining why some places have a higher than normal rate of unexplained or significant events. And the ley line at Hanging Rock is said to channel dark energy. Have you ever visited a place or gone into the bush and felt an intense energy? I have. I've felt intense energies at a few places over the years, I guess. 
Uh, I remember going to the old cemetery, actually, across the road from Alistair Crowley's house on the Loch Ness, probably way back in 1998 or something. Uh, that place had a very strong energy, almost hard to explain, quite dark, I suppose. Um, but I'm a little bit different. I don't feel threatened by those sorts of dark energies. Uh, sometimes I kind of um, I take to it. <laughs> Um, I don't do a lot of bushwalking, however, there are a lot of areas in national parks I know of where the energy is somewhat darker or intense. There's a place called Anstey Hill here in South Australia, which has a few spots, actually. One place that has an intense energy for me is actually the Blue Lake at Mount Gambier. Mm, that's an amazing spot. I haven't been there in years. And obviously Hanging Rock is notorious for these kinds of intense energies and feelings that people experience there but aside from the reported haunting and unusual phenomena do bad things happen at hanging rock more than other places in 2002 13 year old travis leclesio died when he fell from the rock there is a remembrance plaque at the rock erected by his family on New Year's Day in 1901, James Flight, a carpenter, fell to his death from a great height and was found by a group of holidaymakers. His death remained a mystery and though ruled an accident, there was some suspicion that it could have been a murder. According to some accounts, there was money missing from his pocket and a man was sighted acting strangely in the area at the time. However, the location is not particularly known for a higher than normal occurrence of terrible events. Generally, it's a much-loved and enjoyed destination for hikers and tourists. Something undeniably terrible did happen there, though. Something that happened all over Australia. A loss of its traditional inhabitants and history. No one knows for certain what the original name of Hanging Rock was. It's called Nangalong by some of its traditional owners, the Wurundjeri people. It was known to be a sacred place and an important ceremonial gathering site. But sadly, in the 19th century, the Aboriginal inhabitants disappeared completely. They died of disease, were killed, displaced and forcibly removed from the area. So their knowledge and history of the area has been largely lost. In recent years, there has even been a campaign called Miranda Must Go, highlighting Australia's obsession with the missing schoolgirls whilst ignoring the countless Indigenous people who are missing from the landscape. The campaigners seek to bring more visibility at the site to the region's Indigenous past. Joan Lindsay acknowledges that something terrible happened there. Her story highlights the chasm between European settlers and the ancient history of the landscape. Appleyard College, with its orderly Victorian and neoclassical architecture, neatly manicured gardens filled with decorative imported flowers, is like another world, juxtaposing dramatically with the wild chaos of nature just outside its walls. It dwells precariously in the shadow of the primeval rock and mountain ranges. Similarly, the girls in their delicate white muslin and lace garments with gloves and hats, corsets and ribbons seem absurdly out of place in the landscape. 
The faces in the rock seem to watch, casting judgment on newcomers. They're alive, a living force, ready to devour trespassers with a sense of natural retribution. Colonial anxiety is certainly expressed within the story, as well as a sense of guilt and awareness of our insignificance against a backdrop of a much more ancient history. Unless you all deport yourselves with rather more grace and considerably less noise, Mrs. Appleyard will see to it that none of you go to Hanging Rock today. The Edwardian era in which the story is set was a time of great change, the bridge between the Victorian era and the modern age, a time described as gilded and progressive when the structure and values of society were changing and some nations were beginning to shed their colonial past. But it was also a time of imperial might, ongoing colonisation and the precursor to World War I as the old world was failing to tackle the needs of the modern. There are many symbols of the old world at odds with the modern in Picnic at Hanging Rock. Archaic relics like Mrs Appleyard and her college with its grand Victorian architecture in the book, Appleyard College is described as an architectural anachronism in the Australian bush, a hopeless misfit in time and place. Another relic of the past are the schoolgirls' garments, the formality of the old world with its restrictive corsets, stockings and underclothes, which are so inappropriate in the Australian summer heat, as well as British symbols and the English schooling at Appleyard College with its upper-class refinements etiquette and morals. The story is a reflection on the age of transition in which it is set. I'm sure you know all too well what it is like to wear a corset in the Australian heat. <laughs> yes, I've done that a few times and I'm sure you have too, Suzanne. In the Edwardian age, as living standards improved, people found they had more leisure time and this led to them spending more time outside in nature and dining outdoors became very fashionable, especially picnics. Nature is one of the key themes of Picnic at Hanging Rock, but to explore this we must first understand a bit about Joan Lindsay because this story is inextricably linked to her life. Joan Lindsay was born in 1896 at the end of the Victorian age. Her father was a prominent judge and her mother a beautiful socialite. Her childhood was idyllic and Picnic at Hanging Rock was an affectionate recollection of her childhood and school days. The story is also an amalgam of her life, influenced and thematically based upon her love of gardening and nature as well as art, mathematics, the supernatural and metaphysical philosophy. The theme of nature is so prominent that nature itself is its own character, with the rock being the main character of the story and the catalyst for the events and consequences thereafter. When you watch the film or read the book, have you noticed that there are flowers in so many scenes? The novel and film is filled with references to plants and animals with deeper meanings derived from traditional floral symbolism. She likes daisies best of all. 
Miranda's favourite flower is the daisy, which traditionally symbolised innocence and purity. In Peter Weir's film adaption, the costume designers even included daisies in the lace trim of her dress. And do you remember the butterfly belt buckle that Miranda wears? It symbolises that her life is as brief as that of the butterfly. The symbol of the swan, which frequently appears, represents Miranda and symbolises grace, beauty and love. Her bedroom at the college is adorned with swan ornaments and postcards. Michael compares Miranda to a swan and he watches as a swan sends out concentric ripples across a lake just as Miranda's disappearance sends out ripples affecting the many people around her. After his frenzied search for Miranda at the rock, he wakes from a fever dream to see an apparition of a white swan at the end of his bed. The swan is Miranda's ghost who haunts him. Beautiful birds, them swans. Pansies are another frequently referenced flower. Michael smells pansies after awaking from his dream of the ghostly swan. Pansies are associated with lovers' thoughts, but also love in vain and remembrance. Albert smells the phantom scent of pansies when he thinks of his sister, another lost girl in the story. They were separated as orphan children and she also appears as a ghostly apparition in his dreams. You may also realise that Sarah is Albert's long-lost sister and this dream is a premonition of her death. Pansies were also significant to Joan Lindsay. She said that she spoke her first words among a bed of pansies, of which she was said to have looked at them and exclaimed, beautiful. Hydrangeas are also significant. Traditionally, they are associated with heartfelt emotions, but in the Victorian era, they also had negative connotations associated with vanity and thoughtlessness. They were the flowers that were given by spurned lovers to the people that rejected them. Appleyard College is abundant with hydrangeas, illustrating the institution's vanity while dahlias represent its instability. Do you remember that scene where Sarah's body is found? Yes, I do. That that was a tragic scene, I thought, because I absolutely loved her. Um, I recall it was a rather brutal scene as well, I guess, for, for a lot of younger viewers, I suppose, but I'm sure it had an impact on many viewers. She was such an adorable, loving girl. Sarah's dead body is found lying amidst the colourful hydrangea blooms because she has been scorned and mistreated. Although in the movie, she dies amidst the pansies for remembrance. Yet as you read the book and watch the movie, these floral motifs will confront you again and again because Joan Lindsay considered nature sacred. Sacred nature was a theme in art and literature common in the early 20th century and evident in the works of Australian artists like Norman and Lionel Lindsay and Sidney Long. While the artists of the Heidelberg School and the Australian Impressionists depicted the bush as a place of work and struggle, these new artists were depicting the bush as a place alive with mysticism and hedonistic eroticism. 
filled with otherworldly creatures, nymphs, dryads, and pan-like deities. The bush became a living mythological entity, poetic and beautiful, announcing a new style of Australian paganism. The fact that this theme runs through Picnic at Hanging Rock is no coincidence either, as not only was Joan Lindsay a trained artist, but she was also married to Norman and Lionel Lindsay's brother, Daryl Lindsay. So she was mingling with all of these creative, like-minded people and understood symbolism in art, which translated to her writing. As a result, Picnic at Hanging Rock brings the bush to life with a sense of mystical and otherworldly paganism as well as a foreboding sense of darkness and danger. Joan Lindsay's beloved house Mulberry Hill was well known for its amazing gardens and she spent countless hours communing with nature there. It's also where she wrote Picnic at Hanging Rock. The house was donated to the National Trust, which Joan Lindsay's husband, Daryl Lindsay, helped to found in 1956. The house and garden is open to the public, so you can visit and see it as it was when they lived there. The symbols of love are another strong current running through the story. See how many you can spot when you watch the film. Valentine's cards, Sarah's heart-shaped cushion, which is like her broken heart, pierced with the pins. The heart-shaped cake, which Miranda cuts with a knife. Does this foretell how she will break everyone's heart? Irma also wears a heart-shaped brooch in the movie. It is significantly pierced with Cupid's arrow. And in the book... The college is decorated with marble statues of Aphrodite, the ancient Greek deity of love and beauty, and her Roman counterpart, Venus, goddess of love and sex. Now I know. What do you know? I know that Miranda is a Botticelli angel. Miranda is described by Mademoiselle de Portier as resembling a Botticelli angel. His birth of Venus painting immediately comes to mind. And in the movie, Botticelli's Primavera, or Allegory of Spring, hangs in Mademoiselle's room. This is significant as an allegory about the burgeoning fertility of the world, portraying Venus presiding over the garden and mirroring the girl's enchantment on the rock. There was also an unused scene from the film in which Peter Weir filmed Anne Louise Lambert in the nude as Venus in a birth of Venus scene. Have you seen this? Mm, I thought it was quite beautiful, actually. The nature symbolism also links back to these goddesses. The swan is sacred to Aphrodite and Venus as to Miranda. And Venus's flower is the rose, which is also frequently featured. Another symbol of love and romance, prominent in scenes between Michael and Irma during their courting. There are roses on the curtains in Miranda and Sarah's room. Roses appear on parasols, shawls and wallpaper. Did you happen to notice Albert's tattoos in the movie? I did notice he had tattoos, but I didn't really, I guess, take too much note of what the tattoos were. In the book, they're not particularly described. 
In the movie, one arm is a mermaid and the other is Venus emerging from her shell. Interesting. Whether the filmmakers did this to add a hidden meaning, I'm not sure. I'll leave it up to you to ponder. I love thee, not because thou art fair, softer than down, smoother than air, nor for the cupids that do lie in either corner of thine eye. Wouldst thou then know what it might be? Tis I love thee, because thou lovest me. The adolescent perception of love is at the very heart of the story and Picnic at Hanging Rock is very much a coming-of-age story too, which is probably why it resonates so much with young women especially, don't you think? Yes, I do agree. There is a certain innocence to the romance in such a way that I guess it takes you back to your own adolescent memories. I think that's the true beauty to Picnic at Hanging Rock. I was going to ask what your opinion on that was. The reason why I think it resonates with so many women especially that I meet, I mean, men love the film too, but I've met a lot of girls and women that just adore this film and book. And I guess it's characters that you can relate to. So if you've seen it as a a child or a teenager they're girls of your same age and the Australian setting makes it particularly relatable as well because at the time there wasn't so much Australian content about coming of age especially in this historical sense most period movies and dramas etc were more about convicts or bushrangers, colonial life, a rougher kind of life, whereas this was soft and it was about that female experience and teenage female experience specifically. That's very true. There is a deep sensuality to the film and book with its many love symbols and the abundance of flowers representing the bloom of womanhood with Miranda depicted as the Queen of May. You can read the ascent into the rocks as the transition from girlhood to womanhood, a sexual awakening with their disappearance being a metaphor for the end of childhood. On the rock, the girls liberate themselves. They remove their stockings and corsets the repressive shackles of womanhood and the symbols of the past. Some people view Picnic at Hanging Rock as a story expressing sexual repression as well as awakening significantly in the relationships between the girls that may express an unfulfilled lesbian desire. What do you think of this interpretation? I suppose I can sort of see their point to some degree. I mean, there is a certain attachment between Miranda and Sarah, or perhaps is it more of an emotional attachment? I mean, she is an orphan and she does struggle to fit in and make other friends, so she is quite attached to her anyway. So there itself lies another mystery, I suppose, open to interpretation. Certainly. In the past... It was common for people to have very close friendships. Young women were isolated within the home or school. They had little interaction with the opposite sex, nor the opportunities for free socialising that we do now. 
So strong bonds between friends were natural and when viewed today are often mistaken for sexual feelings. Peter Weir did comment that making the characters secret lesbians was too basic and he never regarded the characters in that way. But in reading for this episode, I found that the undercurrent of repressed sexuality may have more merit than I first thought. It's obviously a reflection of the era that sexuality was repressed regardless. But Joan Lindsay shared a very close friendship with a lady named May Casey for more than 80 years. They shared an art studio together after graduating university and Joan described this as the happiest time of her life. May was also reported in her biography to have had several female lovers. Most of Joan and May's private correspondence was burned before they passed away, but a few poignant love poems that they wrote for each other do remain. And remember, Sarah was laughed at for writing love poetry to Miranda. Edith joked that Sarah wrote it on the dunny. And I love the use of that word in a piece of literature. It just makes it so Australian, don't you think? It really does, yeah. Romantic friendship was a common concept in the Victorian and Edwardian era such as between the girls exchanging valentines in Picnic at Hanging Rock and Sarah expressing her love for Miranda, people openly displayed and expressed affectionate feelings, but it was not frequently sexual, though in some cases it could be used as a facade for a taboo sexual relationship. At this time in the early 20th century, same-sex relationships were not accepted and despite what feelings the ladies may or may not have had for each other, an openly lesbian relationship was not possible. Women were expected to marry men and have children, especially upper-class women like this. There were certain expectations of them and the possibility of anything else was not plausible. And the more that I explore Picnic at Hanging Rock, the more I feel that it is an elegy for broken hearts and unfulfilled love with loss being one of the other core themes at the heart of the story. Maybe Joan is Sarah and Miranda is May, a past love or friendship lost to her forever and Picnic at Hanging Rock is a goodbye letter. You must learn to love someone else apart from me, Sarah. I won't be here much longer. Of course, today most people know Picnic at Hanging Rock from the film, even if they haven't read the book. Directed by Peter Weir and released in 1975, it was adapted quite brilliantly for the screen by screenwriter Cliff Green and the translation of much of the gorgeous symbolism and esoteric meaning 
can be largely attributed to Martin Sharp, the artistic advisor to the director. He had a passionate and very deep understanding of the novel. Did you know that the movie made its cinematic debut at the Hindley Street Cinema Complex in Adelaide? Really? I actually didn't know that. At the time, it was brand new, and that was the first place that it screened in the world. That's amazing. I, I really never knew that. And the wonderful visual style of the film achieved by cinematographer Russell Boyd with its dreamy, soft-focused appearance was influenced by Australian Impressionist art, the work of French photographer Henri Cartier-Bresson and British filmmaker-photographer David Hamilton. Bridal veils and lace were placed over the camera lens and silk was hung in the trees to diffuse the light, resulting in the film's very distinctive dreamlike atmosphere. It's like recollecting a hazy memory which perfectly suits the ideal of a past time or recalling something that happened long ago. The original score was composed by Bruce Smearton with George Zamfir playing those haunting panpipes synonymous with the film. The panpipes seem to at time mimic birdsong, and they're of course the instrument of the god Pan, which again imbues the bush with that sense of otherworldly pagan mysticism. They're like a call from Pan, luring the girls away into the bush, the film wouldn't be the same without them, don't you think? I certainly not. In fact, I actually recall when I went to The Rock many, many years ago with my dad on a road trip, we played the original score really loudly in the car um, whilst driving around the outskirts of The Rock and it just completely set a haunting atmosphere. It just suited it perfectly. Took you right into the atmosphere of the moment. It really did, yeah. My dad was a huge fan of Picnic at Hanging Rock as well, so we were just loving it. At certain points of the film in the soundtrack, there's a deep droning sound. This is actually the slowed down sound of an earthquake. It was meant to evoke primal, subconscious memories of fear and dread while representing the living, ominous present and ancient nature of the rock. The film was shot in six weeks. Filming began on the 3rd of February 1975 at Hanging Rock. Then the cast and crew coincidentally arrived in Adelaide on Valentine's Day for the first time of shooting there. Alban Terrace in Strathalban was substituted for the main street of Woodend. Martindale Hall, which was the school in the movie, is a Georgian-style mansion built between 1879 to 1880 for Edmund Bowman, Jr., it consists of 32 rooms and a large cellar. It is very imposing and really does stand out from a distance. And going back to that description of Appleyard College as an anachronism in the landscape, Martindale Hall definitely feels like this too, don't you think? It really does, yes. Yeah, and after driving along the long, quiet country road... You pass endless plains of yellow dry grass and bushland and the hall finally comes into view. It's this grand, majestic building in the middle of nowhere. It's like it's just materialised from another age and place and you've spent quite a bit of time there, as have I. 
Yes, and that's probably been one of my favourite places since a very young child. Been there many, many times over the years. Yeah, and the beautiful thing about it is that it's open to the public. So as you see it in the film, you can actually go and visit there and take a tour of this beautiful historic building and its gardens. But I've heard that sadly the hall's future is under threat once again. Yeah, it's really quite scary actually because I think that this was something that was gifted to the public of South Australia and I really don't like that it's under threat. I don't think a lot of people will be very happy about this. So what's actually happening with it? Minister for the Environment David Spears quietly introduced a bill to South Australian Parliament that would abolish the Martindale Hall Conservation Park that surrounds the building as well as pass the hall into private hands. In the past, there have been proposals to make it some exclusive day spa, but the building and land was a bequest to the people of South Australia. It has been open to the public for decades now. Now they want to take it away from the people. Last time they did this, the public outcry was so great that they had to back down. So fingers crossed that people have sent their letters and signed their petitions. So I guess we'll just have to keep fighting and I think in the future we'll definitely have to do a full episode on Martindale Hall. I absolutely agree and I completely urge anyone and encourage anyone to join in in this petition. If we all come together, I think there's powers in numbers, so this place really needs to be saved. If you want to learn how you can help save Martindale Hall, you can contact the South Australian National Trust and there is a Facebook page called Share the Love, Keep Martindale Hall for the People. We also post all the time about it on our Facebook page and Instagram, so there's plenty more information there as well. And back to the film, you had a few interesting pieces of information about the cast. Is that correct? That's correct, yes. Uh, Mrs Appleyard was actually played by an actress by the name of Rachel Roberts. And the unusual thing was that she was extremely similar to the character that she played and she lived a rather eccentric life that also ended in tragedy, similar to Mrs Appleyard. Uh, She unfortunately committed suicide at the age of only 53 on the 26th of November in 1980. Yeah, she was a very esteemed British actress and she's like towering as Mrs Appleyard, the headmistress. She was, yeah, she she would have been an interesting person to have met, I reckon. And if you watch the extras, a lot of the uh, girls that played schoolgirls in Picnic at Hanging Rock said they were actually scared of her. Apparently she was this quite intimidating character, so it did play out a bit in real life, as in the film, that they didn't know whether she was like that or just played this character the whole time but she did definitely have some similarities to her character. Um, Also the gorgeous Margaret Nelson who of course played Sarah Wayborn. She's a mystery as well. Uh, It seems none of the cast or crew know where she is to this day and perhaps it was a decision that she made many years ago. I personally would love to meet her. She was my personal favourite character. I think she was just beautiful. Definitely. The whole cast is so strong. And, of course, Anne Louise Lambert as the lovely Miranda, who is, 
iconic and unforgettable. But when it comes to Sarah, that performance is oh, its so touching. And she was my favourite character as well, even though I, I do love Miranda. Mm-hmm. Um, oh, there's just well. something about Sarah and she showed every emotion in her face and eyes. It really uh, imprinted on me, just that level of heartache and suffering. And they did mention on the extras on the DVD, Peter Weir says that they actually had concerns for her during the filming of Picnic at Hanging Rock because she took on this role so fully that she became depressed and melancholy and they did actually have these concerns for her. So maybe she was the kind of actress that really takes on every emotion and feels so deeply Mm. that it's hard to separate between where she ends and the character begins and it was a really tough role what Sarah goes through she's had this really tragic life so I don't know whether that has anything to do with her uh, discontinuing her acting career it's hard to know and they also cast the movie in South Australia as they couldn't find the girls who would suit the roles in other states Yes, apparently because us South Australian girls are so innocent and angelic. In the other states, the girls were too worldly, sophisticated, modern young women. But when they looked at girls in South Australia, they said they could have jumped right out of 1900, maybe because Adelaide is a bit smaller, slower, simpler back then anyway. The distinctive period costumes were designed by Judy Dorsman and Anne Lambert, who played Miranda, got to keep her dress, which she later donated to the National Film and Sound Archive of Australia. Executive producer Patricia Lovell admitted to being scared of Hanging Rock and since shooting she had only gone back once in 1985 and had such a feeling of terror that she left immediately. Script writer Cliff Green went to The Rock to research before adapting the book and actually got lost on The Rock. Peter Weir also went there by himself to prepare for the film and became lost. Joan Lindsay said to him, of course, you have to get lost there or you won't be able to make the film. At the Victorian premiere of the film at the State Theatre, the theatre clock stopped at 12, just like in the book. Just as the cast and crew had their watches stop on the rock while filming. In 1998, Peter Weir recut the movie in a director's cut version for the DVD release. Usually a director's cut involves a director adding scenes that were originally cut. But in this instance, he actually cut approximately seven minutes from the film. Cutting scenes that he believed to be extraneous. And by doing so, he focused the film's impact more as a tragedy. So when it came out on DVD, this was a surprise to many people who remembered the film from the cinema and decades of subsequent TV and VHS viewings. What what did you think of the recut? Oh, look, I didn't mind it, but I guess I thought it was fine the way it was. I guess he obviously had his reasons, but 
in my opinion, what's another seven minutes? Yeah, it was unusual seeing it different and when you couldn't quite place, oh, that was different. I think it definitely works. Both versions work. Mm. But now the original incarnation of the film, the theatrical cut, is only available on the three-disc special edition released by Second Sight Films in the UK. There was a nice release here in Australia by Umbrella Entertainment, who also produced a quite excellent documentary on the film. And there's also a USA release by Criterion, but none of these actually included the theatrical cut. So I would say it would be better to have both because they do both work, but a lot of people feel, and I think I tend to lean this way, it should have been left as it was because that's how people remembered it and that's how it had been for so long. And the theatrical cut follows much more closely to the book. So if you've read the book, the theatrical cut really makes sense. And overall, what has been the film's legacy? Apart from becoming one of the most loved and acclaimed Australian movies, it was one of the most important films that helped kick off the Australian new wave of cinema and paved the way for other films that explored Australian identity, coming of age and the mysticism of the bush, such as Peter Weir's other film, The Last Wave, Bruce Berriford's The Getting of Wisdom, My Brilliant Career, directed by Gillian Armstrong, John Dugan's The Year My Voice Broke, among many others. And Sophia Coppola said that Picnic at Hanging Rock has been a massive influence on her, leaving its mark in her own coming-of-age themed films, such as her adaptation of Geoffrey Eugenides' novel The Virgin Suicides, Mary Antoinette, and the 2017 adaptation of the American gothic tale The Beguiled, which actually shares a lot in common with Picnic at Hanging Rock, being adapted from a book written by Thomas Cullinan, which was published in 1966. Picnic at Hanging Rock was also published in the 60s. They were also both made into movies in the 70s, previous to Coppola's version. And with its boarding school setting, cast of well-to-do young ladies and dark themes, they certainly share a lot in common. But while The Beguiled is indicative of the American South, Picnic at Hanging Rock is very much indicative of Australia. We ask for your protection over our school and we pray that we will be kept from harm throughout the night. Amen. So we've ventured a little into the world of Hanging Rock with this episode and though we hate to keep you hanging, you'll have to wait until next time to find out what happened to Miranda, Marion and Mrs McCraw. Next episode, we'll delve even further and discuss the theories behind the girl's disappearance and tackle the big questions. What happened to them? And is the story fact or fiction? The answer might not be as simple as you think. We will tell some true Australian stories of missing girls and boys 
some of which bear a striking resemblance to the events in Picnic at Hanging Rock. So until next time, what we see and what we seem are but a dream, a dream within a dream.